This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 25th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Chris Rich. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Guys, it is a joy to be with you here this morning. Um, it is an absolute miracle of God's grace and His Holy Spirit that on today at 1045 in the morning, you're like, we should go into an old barn and hear a guy we know, don't know yell at us. Uh, and so thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor of Damascus Road Church in Marysville. If you don't know anything about Marysville, maybe you're a fan of the TV show Parks and Rec. I love that show. It takes place in this town called Pawnee, Indiana. Kind of a dumpy town. They've got a paunch burger, a tire fire, uh, and, and like just parks that are falling apart. So that's Marysville. Um, and so um, they have this other town next to, to Pawnee called Eagleton that's really fancy. It has nice brew pubs um, and things like that. That's Eagleton. So it is a joy to be preaching here this morning in the Eagleton of Washington, uh, coming from the Pawnee uh, of Washington. And so um, today we are going to be um, looking at God's deeper mercy out of the book of Jonah. And so if you are a Christian or grew up in the church or know anything about the Bible or the story of Jonah, like you're already probably glazing over and saying, yeah, yeah I know this one. Right? This is the guy who was sent by God to go on a mission to save sinners uh, in some like distant uh, city in Nineveh. He um, disobeys God, goes the other way, uh, gets on a boat, a storm comes, he gets chucked off, gets swallowed by a fish, is in the belly for three days. We're like, what's going on there? That seems a little far-fetched. Uh, gets spit out, goes and walks in obedience, and, and then you've got, um, you have Jonah uh, being um, uh, actually obedient. Uh, Nineveh gets saved and all sorts of people repent. And you're like, hey, great end of the story. Except then we read chapter four and we find out Jonah's a jerk. And he's ticked off that a bunch of people got saved. And it kind of has this weird um, dissonance at the end of it because we don't really know how Jonah processed all that God did. And so with that, it's a, a story that's simple enough that like every kid gets the story of Jonah. Like it's all in the little kid's Bible. They always skip chapter four about Jonah being a jerk. Uh, and then um, uh, yet at the same time, you've got learned theologians who have studied and poured over this text for a few millennia trying to understand what is God trying to teach us through what seems to at times be a very simple and yet at other times very confusing story. And so through Jonah's disobedience and the distress, here in Jonah chapter 1, we are going to be seeing God's deeper mercy. And so if you would, please turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going to work through this. You can turn it on your app too if you want to. Just You should know right away that makes you less holy than everyone else. Like if you didn't bring your Bible and you just have a phone, like it just doesn't count. Like trees died for this, right? Um, and so here we are. Let's, let's get into it. The jokes get worse. Um, all right. Jonah chapter one, one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And found a ship going to Tarshish, so we paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah has been sent on a mission of mercy to a city of sin, and his response to God's direction is disobedience. And so where almost every other Old Testament prophet, if you know your Bible, like they get a word from the Lord, and how do they respond? 
Yes, Lord, I'm here. Send me. Like there's these, these kind of like God superheroes that God just tells them to do something and they do it. And we read that and we kind of get discouraged because like, let's be honest. We usually know what God tells us to do and we usually don't want to do it. And so I, I love Jonah. I love Jonah because Jonah hears a word from the Lord and he's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. That might be really hard. That would be really painful. Actually, I may not enjoy that at all. In fact, it might even lead to something I don't want to see happen. And so where every other Old Testament prophet is really focused on the message that God gives to the prophet to give to the people, the lessons that we have in Jonah are about like the, the life of the messenger and how he responds in disobedience, meets distress, gives devotion, sees God deliver, and then ends with displeasure. And so it's not about the message in this case, it's about the messenger. And, and so while we're going to focus a lot on disobedience this morning, um, we could oversimplify this and think that the whole message is just obey God, right? And, and again, you read the children's story of it, it's usually just drills down to Jonah disobeyed and then he obeyed and, and everything goes well. But the reality is this is actually much more about God's character, about God's deeper mercy to sinners in their disobedience because if this was just a religious story about obedience, it wouldn't be a very long one because God demands perfect obedience. And so if this was just a story of religion and, and how our obedience pleases God, like it'd be really simple. God would just tell Jonah, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah would say, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Boom, lightning bolt, Jonah's dead, end of story. Right? The holy, perfect God of the universe just told one of his created beings to act in a way um, that accords with his will and it's rejected. Justice and wrath are earned and deserved. And so, like, it's a simple story, like, don't disobey God, obey God, and good things will happen. But it's, it's more than that, because none of that's good news, because every single one of us walks in and experiences disobedience to God. And so, we can't just tell each other, hey, be more obedient to God. Like, we have to realize that God is not impressed with your obedience or mine. God is only satisfied with the perfect obedience of his son, Jesus. And so for us as Christians, we don't place our hope in how well we obey God. We place our hope in Jesus' perfect obedience in our place. And so this is why we call this the gospel. This is good news that it cannot be just about our obedience alone. Yet, God displays right away his mercy. See, as we said, like Jonah is disobedient. And God is merciful to not strike down Jonah. He actually lets him walk in disobedience for a period of time. And as he walks in disobedience, as Jonah gets the message in Jerusalem to go to Nineveh, like if you don't know your geography, Nineveh was in modern-day Mosul in Iraq. Jonah would have likely heard this message as a prophet of Israel in Jerusalem. And then he goes to the Mediterranean Sea to go to Joppa. That's like you're here in Snohomish, God has called you to go reach the people for some reason in index, right? You go up towards the mountain. No, no. You go down Highway 2 to Everett to the waterfront and you find a boat going to Hawaii. See, Tarshish, that's like modern day Spain. 
It was supposedly beautiful, like it's on the Mediterranean coast, right? And like Jonah's like, now I'm going to just go, rather than Iraq, I'm going to go ahead and go to Spain. Like, let's be honest, we'd make that trade, right? Like, like I love it when I meet people who are like, I am called to reach the surf population of northern Kauai. Really? No, I think you want to go there. If you're called, you go to Marysville, right? That's why we know we're in Marysville because it's rough uh, there. It's not Hawaii. That's enough about Marysville. Uh, We'll keep going. So um, in this, like it even seems providential that Jonah can walk in disobedience. He's like, well, there's a ship going to where I want to go. Like in my kid's children's Bible, it says going to not Nineveh. And so, like, he's, he's like, this is great. I can keep doing this. And the reality is when we begin to walk in disobedience in sin, it is never or not usually immediately painful for us. So we're able to walk in disobedience and have no immediate consequences. And we might think wrongly that that means there's no consequence for sin. So, like, we know if we're in Christ, if we're Christians, that, like, we're called to live lives of sexual purity. And yet uh, a lustful thought enters our head, a search becomes a click, you put your phone down, a few minutes later, no lightning bolts, nothing bad seems to happen, right? You know, you know what your job responsibilities are, God has said we're all to work unto the Lord, and, and so you're like, oh, I can show up late, I can leave early, I can start fudging on a, on a time card or an expense report, and like, you know, it's a small margins, nobody notices, no harm, no foul, right? Okay, maybe you're a hard worker and maybe you're not addicted to pornography, like praise God. Like we are in America, all of us have insane amounts of consumer debt, right? We all spend more than we make. And so like, like every time you get out that card and swipe, like it feels good. And, and like now you just grab your phone and the thumbprint from Amazon, you get it in three days. No consequences. It actually feels really good to walk in disobedience until the bill comes due, until you lose your job or until like you find yourself in a place of addiction or you've, or, or you've like, d- destroyed your marriage or your family. See, disobedience will eventually lead to distress. Um, I shared this with, with First Service. I shared this with my church um, uh, about a month or so ago. Um, part of why I love Jonah is, is that I really... It spoke to me a lot through this text. Uh, and so like my disobedience wasn't with any of those things I just listed. My, mine was, and I think we can even have disobedience in really good things, but mine was, was an idolatry of ministry. And so if you don't know, like um, I, I've been an elder pastor at Damascus Road for about eight years. Uh, I came on staff right after we sent out our first church plant, communion church up in Mount Vernon. And like, it was a really exciting time to be part of Damascus Road Church. We had just planted our first church. We're growing. New people are coming in. I'm the executive pastor, so I get to meet all the new people, help them get integrated. I'm overseeing road groups. I'm watching road groups getting multiplied. I'm overseeing the budget. I'm watching the budget go up and up. Like, all of a sudden, we're hiring staff, right? Brian Dixon comes and joins the team. He's awesome. And it's like, hey, this is a really cool time to be part of Damascus Road. And then we're like, hey, let's go plant a church here in Snohomish. And so we plant this campus here in Snohomish. If you don't know, like, this church started as Damascus. Road, Snohomish, and as the executive, like, I got to see the cool parts of mission at both. I got to see what was going on in Marysville. I got to see all the new and fun, exciting things here in Snohomish. And so, like, those are all good things. And I began to feel entitled that ministry and mission should always be exciting and enjoyable. 
Yeah. Okay. Some people serve here and they know what's going on, right? Like, and so you just think, oh, ministry is going to be fun and great. And, and it was until we realized that we needed to make uh, these two campuses, two distinct churches, because we were saying ridiculous things like we're one flock on two hills. Have you ever looked at a flock of sheep? Good luck putting them on two hills, right? right? They become two flocks and that's a good and right thing. So the shepherds can shepherd the flock among them, not out of compulsion. And so like we, we went through a, a very, I believe, healthy and God-honoring process of prayer and fasting as local elders, as three-strand, right? Uh, Restoration Road's part of the three-strand church network. Um, our church is part of uh, Acts 29 as well. And all of those at the end of 2013 said, Chris Rich is to be the lead pastor of Damascus Road Church in Marysville. That's about as clear as you get as a word from the Lord. Like, you're not going to quite get the Jonah, like, go to Nineveh, I mean, Marysville, right? And so, like, like it was clear that was what I was supposed to do. And 2014 starts, and we announced that to the church, and, and I began with feelings of entitlement that I would be leading an experience, a um, established church, that I have certain people that would be on mission with us, certain resources, staff, all those types of things. And, and all of a sudden, like something happened when we said, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and divide these. Like it was almost like um, everybody had been given cue cards. Like my wife and I started getting, um, having these conversations over and over that started really well. Like, hey, we love you guys. We are excited for you to take leadership at Damascus Road in Marysville. We are going to be support you 100%. And we're we're going to Snohomish. Well, that didn't feel like support. And so like my sinful comparison and my entitlement just grew and grew. And people who I loved and cared about, I'm responding to in anger because I'm sad that, that they're leaving or they're not leaving. They're just going on the mission God called them to. So in my world, like Jonah had been called to go to a place. And yet in my world, there was a boat going to Snohomish. And um, my wife and I, like, we didn't get on the boat. Like, Jonah gets on the boat. We didn't get on the boat. We just stood on the dock and watched every, a lot of people that we know and love and care about, and some of y'all are here today, like, get on that boat and sail away. And the music got louder, and, and um, you know, we see all these people on the boat, and we think, dang, we should have gotten on that boat. And it, and it hurt. Because like, I mean, like, if this is the boat, this building, like, I signed the lease on this boat. <laughs> and so, but it was disobedience. Because God hadn't called me to be on mission in Snohomish. God had called me to be on mission in, in Marysville. And I, and I love Marysville, you know, like, like, you know, the people in Parks and Rec love their little town, right? <laughs> and so, maybe I'm Leslie Nope. Dang it, we just, we just, we're getting way off track here. Um, but I was in disobedience. It was my sin of comparison. Because I, oh man, what's going on at Restoration Road? Dang it, we don't have as much Bible studies. Oh, what about the media? Like all these different things. And, and at a certain point, God used very difficult means to bring my disobedience to light. So he brought the elders in and they said, hey, Chris, this is about eight months, right? This is almost all of 2014. My elders said, Chris, your head is not in the game. Right? My, my disobedience, like I could fake it for a while. Still preaching sermons, still leading Bible studies, still doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I mean, I was doing my job, but they could tell that something was wrong. And they said, Chris, we think that you are sinfully comparing uh, what's happening in Snohomish to what's happening in Marysville. And your head's not in the game and you're walking in disobedience. And let me tell you, guys, it does not feel good 
to have people confront you with sin. And yet it's God's mercy to do that so you cannot continue to walk in disobedience without knowing what's going on. And so he did that. And I praise God for that. As my, and as my heart is kind of saying, okay, I need to kind of divorce my, get, I need to get off the dock in Joppa, quit watching the ship sail away. Something else happened in Marysville. If you know, like, like the local news at that time, October of 2014, there was a high school shooting at Marysville Pilchuck High School. Right? A, a kid who was in such distress and in such pain ends up killing a bunch of his best friends. National news. And that's when I was reminded that the mission of God is not about getting to have your friends in a cool, hip church. Y'all are cool and hip, in case you didn't know. Um, but the mission of God is to shine light into darkness. And all of a sudden, there's a sense of urgency that it wasn't about who's going to Snowmash, who's going to Marysville. Like, there's spiritual darkness in our city and in our county that can only be confronted and only be addressed effectively with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden, I realized I have a hope for our city, and it's something better than just the community's response to the shooting. It is the gospel. And so by God's grace and radical repentance, I poured myself and my wife and I poured ourselves into the ministry of Damascus Road Church. And I believe that, that like, as a church, we're flourishing now, and it's great. And I don't, that's not all on me. I want to be clear. But I do believe that God honors our obedience. And now we have a period of joy and restoration. I can come and, and like, preach and be here. I'm like, this is just a joy to be with you guys. And so Jonah is in this place where he still hasn't repented. He's still walking along, like it's, it, it, but it's about, to, it's about to get difficult for Jonah like it got for me. Because it's not always smooth sailing. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. That's what I tell my kids all the time. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. And Jonah's about to start facing some of those consequences. So let's, let's keep going here. Jonah uh, uh, verses four through six. We're going to begin to see God act. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay, um, when you are reading your Bible and you come across the phrase, but the Lord or but God, it almost always means man has walked in sin and disobedience. There is like a, just a dumpster fire of humanity and God is about to intervene, in, intercede, pursue his people and, and lead to transformation, right? Like Ephesians uh, 2 chapter 4, like, but God being rich in mercy, okay? So here we are, God's gonna do that again. And in this case, God's about to act in Jonah's disobedience and, and, and not with like grace, like, hey, Jonah, let me bless you. But instead, God is showing mercy to Jonah by not allowing his disobedience to be comfortable. So a storm comes. And it said that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And like, this is God's mercy to not let Jonah make it all the way to Tarshish. See, if Jonah makes it to Tarshish, he might live his days out there. No one in Nineveh gets saved. Um, and at the end of, of uh, Jonah's life, like he's gonna meet God face to face. And God's gonna call him to account for his life. And at that time, like he's gonna face damnation and destruction. And God doesn't wanna see that for Jonah. 
So he leads to immediate discomfort in what's going on. And so um, here's Jonah. He's running. He's fleeing the presence of the Lord. Jonah thinks if he just keeps running, uh, God's will can be overcome. I think that sometimes we think if we just keep running and keep going, like we can overcome God's will. Uh, I I came across across this quote when preparing for this message from a, a sales guru named Og Mandino. It says, you cannot conquer reality by running away from it. And I believe that's true. Like sometimes we face distress and we face disobedience and we just want to run. And I think the reason that we want to run is in our heart of hearts, we know that we are guilty of sin and disobedience. And so we leave our marriages, we leave our jobs, we change churches, we do all, anything we can to just run and change our circumstances, trying to flee the presence of the Lord. But God will find you and knows that you're there and justice will prevail. But guilty people still run, right? Criminals still run, right? You ever watch the TV show Cops? What do those guys do when the cops come out, right? They just start sprinting. And then they tackle them under like a, you know, kiddie pool or something like that, right? Like, I, I, got, to, I got to experience this in a very real way about seven years ago. Um, so uh, I was preparing for a sermon uh, up, up in, for, in my hometown of Vancouver to be preached back in Marysville. And, and about seven years ago, I was about 30, 35 pounds heavier. Uh, I, I'm uh, wearing cargo khaki shorts from Costco because I've got a bunch of kids and that's where I buy my clothes. Um, and so, um, uh, like, I, I'm also wearing flip-flops, which are not the best, um, to, for foot support. And as I'm working on this sermon and I'm by the window, I see a guy running down the street. And here's, here's the fundamental truth of life. Like, this guy was in jeans. And if you ever see a guy running in jeans, something bad has happened, right? Something bad has happened. No one runs in jeans, like plans, like, hey, going to go do a 5K today? Let's get on the skinny jeans and let's go, right? No one does that. And here's this guy running down these skinny jeans. And I was like, well, that's odd. I wonder what's going on. So I go to the door because I'm a little hyperactive. And then I see a cop come around the corner who's a little bigger and he's loaded up and he's older. And, and I see the guys getting farther away from the cop. And, and this cannot be standard operating procedure. If you're a cop, let me know. This cop yells out like, somebody stop that man. And I hear that. And I think I'm somebody. Like, I'm that somebody. And so the guy runs down the street and he passes a couple Mormon missionaries on bikes. They do nothing. Like the cops admonish him later, like, what were you guys doing? And, and, and I'm like, no, no, I've got this. And so he's running down the street. And like, like I, I was a band nerd uh, and knowledgeable guy in high school, but I did play a little bit of football very badly. And the one thing that my coach told me was, if you want to tackle a guy, get an angle. So I got an angle on this guy because he's crossing the street and he has no idea that I'm coming. And he comes, to, he gets to the next block and there's a Subway sandwich shop. He comes around the corner. I've closed the gap in my flip-flops and, and all that stuff, right? And, and, and again, no idea he's coming. And I get right behind him. And this is where, like, I need you to know, everything I'm about to tell you is 100% true. This is not pastor doing hyperbole, okay? At the moment that I come up right behind him, I yell, you can run from the law, but you can't run from me. And then I grab him and shove him up against this van, and the cops come and tackle him. And and everybody comes out of the subway clapping, and somebody hands me a Starbucks gift card because that's my love language. And like, it was like... Like I said, knowledgeable banner, this was the toughest moment of my life. I have grown a beard in response to that moment. Um, and so, like, this was, this was a high point. And so, like, like, you can think you're outrunning 
God and outrunning justice, but justice will prevail. And I know in this story, I'm justice, okay? Like, I was vulnerable early. I wanted to have a story where I'm the hero too. Uh, and so I don't do that very often if you're part of my ministry. Like, really try to not be the hero in my stories. But this one's just so perfect. Uh, and so super glad to share it with you guys. Um, let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> so um, as, as we get back into the text, though, what we realize is that disobedience will always lead to distress eventually. And so with Jonah, the storm comes. And, and I do want to say that not all distress is created equally, right? So if you're suffering distress because of economic forces or things outside your control, that's fine. But in this story, the stress is specific because Jonah is in sin. And there's a distress response from that created by God for mercy. And what's happened is there's now a community formed around Jonah's sin. They're all in the ship together. And it says the ship is threatened to break up. The translation actually says, expected itself to be torn apart. And now you've got this community formed by Jonah's disobedience. The sailors have no idea what's going on. They're just on the boat doing their sailor thing. And so, like, I want you to know that if you're walking in sin, you're walking in disobedience, like, it's never going to stay contained to you. It will always impact and infect and affect others around you. And that's why I believe in the New Testament that James says that when people fall or people walk in disobedience, that they have shipwrecked their faith. James doesn't say like, oh, they, they like horse wrecked their faith, right? Or stumbled, right? He says, no, shipwrecked because their sin, their accident, like caused pain for a whole bunch of other people that are on the ship. And now I want to be clear, like, the, the, the sailors aren't totally innocent, right? We see a little bit that they're kind of pagan. But there is this reality that, well, these guys aren't totally sinless people. They're not guilty of Jonah's sin. And yet they're suffering for it. And so I want you to ask yourself, when you've been in sin or you've walked in disobedience, who has been impacted by it? Who's in a boat right now facing a storm because you're walking in disobedience. Because individual disobedience quickly leads to corporate pain. And so it affects families, affects small groups, affects your workplace, affects schools, affects your church, right? Like in, like in my story, right, I, my, my ship was like a whole, like, like struggling church plant, replant, because of my sin. What is it for you? Who's in your boat with you? Okay. See, what happens is that when we find our places ourselves in these deep distress, we, we come to these places of great fear, and then we try to manage the storm, okay? And so what I'm going to do very quickly is work through seven ways that I believe that we manage the storm of, of distress that God has brought into our lives that are ineffective. And, and I'll, I see these right here in the text. And so number one, we cry out to empty gods or any god at all. So for the sailors, right, we said that they're pluralistic. They're crying out to any God that they can. They're experienced, but they're in fear. And so they're just appealing to any uh, higher power they can find. And so like, I'll just try anything. I'll do anything. And hopefully something works. They even get Jonah. They're like, hey, Jonah, you, you pray to your God. And, and it, it's a lot like um, in uh, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, right? Great film, um, uh, right, with Will Ferrell. Like he comes out of the car uh, after a car accident and he starts screaming, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish God. Help me, Allah. Help Help me, Tom Cruise, right? And, and like, see, yeah, because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. That's why it's funny. Uh, and so, um, but, but it's a farce, 
because he's just trying to do something and see if it'll stick. And the reality is when we find ourselves in distress and we find ourselves in pain, we start to look for something outside of ourselves. That's why we say there's no atheists in foxholes when the shelling comes or the storm comes, right? And so I'm a Northwest cat, um, and I grew up listening to like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Uh, and if you follow the music scene at all, maybe you know that about six or eight weeks ago, Chris Cornell, the lead singer of Soundgarden, committed suicide at age 52. And more than maybe any other musician in the last maybe 10 or 20 years in their passing, like this one really impacted me because I really loved his music. Like some of his songs were some of my favorite songs. And I think part of why I loved it is it had this sort of existential angst of crying out for something more, right? He had a whole album called Higher Truth. Like, is there something more than what we see out here? And my hope was that in his journey and in his struggle, he would find Jesus and realize that there is hope beyond this world and the sin and brokenness. And yet as I'm studying these, like, like I'm, I'm listening to old songs and music videos and articles, uh, like it was up late that night, I came across this lyric from, from what's, again, one of my favorite songs from when he was an audio slave, Like a Stone, it'll be up on the screen. He says, on my deathbed, I will pray to the gods and the angels like a pagan to anyone who will take me to heaven. He's just like the sailors. He just wants something to ease the pain, to end the stress and get you to heaven. And as Christians, you need to know we do this as well. No, we, we don't change teams, right? When the, when, the, when the Mormon missionary or the Jehovah's Witness knocks on the door, we're not like, sure, yeah, sign me up. Like, we don't do that. No, it's much more subtle than that. Pain comes, storm comes, distress comes, and we just begin to self-medicate. So we drink a little bit more, we eat a little bit more, Exercise more, maybe spend some money, go on a vacation, go, you know, go, for, go for a walk, like, like, like dive into our hobbies more. Just try to like, like whatever it is to escape and to seek comfort. And so I want you to ask yourself, when you face distress, when you face pain, when you face fear, what's the first thing you do? And I know if you grew up in church, you're like, the answer is Jesus. Like, but, but there's a reality that, that we don't usually just go to our knees in prayer. We don't normally just read the Bible. We don't normally just like listen to a sermon or a song, right? What's the first thing you do to find comfort? That's your God. That's what you're hoping is going to lead to your satisfaction, comfort, and ease to distress. So number one, we cry out to empty gods or any God at all. Number two, we clear the decks. Right? Sailors start chucking stuff overboard, right? They, they're sailors. They know what to do. Like, they're stressed out. We've overcome storms before. Lighten the load. Boat rises. We'll make it home. And we do this too. Like, we know that sometimes there's pain points in our life that are just like, oh, I just didn't manage my time or money well. Like, if I just put some more structures in place, it'll be fine. And that can work. Like, that's a good thing to do. But sometimes there's a stress that just comes from sin. And no amount of structurally changing your life is going to help you overcome sin. And so that's why, like, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're um, behind at work or getting a bad grade in school, like, knuckle down and, and re- reorganize your schedule, drop your extracurriculars, and get it done. You got sin in your marriage? We don't just prescribe, like, hey, do a date night. Oh, you have adultery in your marriage? Like, well, it's because you didn't do a date night once a week. Why don't you start doing that? That'll fix everything. No. Structural changes will not change your heart. And when you're walking in sin and disobedience, you can arrange the deck chairs on the Titanic all you want. It's still going down. 
And so where are you trying to mitigate the forces of the storm structurally without addressing your heart? Number three, this one is incredibly popular. Almost all of us do this. We just retreat and pretend that everything's okay. Right? So the pagans are working hard, the pagan sailors rather. They're going to try to deploy wisdom to overcome the storm. Jonah sees the storm. He's a religious guy. He's like, ooh, that looks bad. That looks rough. I'm going to go down and take a nap. Right? Goes down to the decks. It says that he is in a deep, deep sleep. The type of sleep that only comes when you're listening to a sermon in a really hot room in the middle of the afternoon. Right? <laughs> and like, he's like, I could sleep through anything now. Right? And so he's totally checked out. He's like, maybe if I just disengage with what's going on, the storm will just pass and we'll make it safely to Tarshish. See, everyone else around him is actively working to overcome the storm that he is causing because of his distress. And this happens all the time, right? Somebody's walking in sin, somebody's walking in disobedience. Everyone else is fried out, trying to mitigate the risk, like what's going on? How, do we, you know, how can we help this person? What can we do to, 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 to help make things easier for them? And the nexus of the storm is cool as a cucumber. Not really affecting me. I'll just check out. Take a break. I'm sure this will all pass. See, some of you know your Bibles and you're like, well, yeah, but Jesus took a nap in the storm. Yeah, he did. Um, and and I, I won't spend too much time on it, but I want you to know that the reason that later we see in the New Testament that Jesus can take a nap when a great storm is coming is because Jesus is in control of the storm. Jonah's in denial. And that's what happens when we check out and we take a nap in the middle of a storm. We're in denial over the strength of the storm. See, Jesus is sinless and he knows the outcome. Like Jesus knows, like, I'm going to stop the storm. Jonah is guilty and in the face of unrelenting distress, thinks he can just sleep away the issue while everyone else deals with it. So where are you checking out or disengaging and everyone else around you is scrambling to keep up with your storm? See, I want you to know, like, these first three the reason I said they're ineffective, it doesn't save them. It doesn't make it any better at all. In fact, let's go ahead and read on and we'll see, verse, we'll see number four and number five. Um, let's look at verses seven through 10. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Duh. Okay. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And, and what people are you? They said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Right. Um, and the God of heaven who made sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So number four, when distress happens because of sin and we try to deal with it, we just start to seek um, answers and analyze. And so the sailors cast lots. Proverbs says every really roll of the dice is of the Lord. And so just as the storm came to bring distresses from God, God reveals it is Jonah that's causing this. Everything's out in the open. Now we all know that person's in sin. Like they're the ones walking in disobedience. We're all on the boat together. Now what? And what happens is once we figure out what's going on, oh, we just start spending endless amounts of time and energy just talking about it. Just, I wonder why they did that. Like, oh, what, what, did their moms not love them enough? Like, did somebody break up with them in high school? Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, why did all these things happen in their lives? And we just start analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. And while the storm is still raging, eh, we'll get to that later. I just want to know why it's raging. We only care about the why. 
And so, while analysis is good to a point, to reveal the source of the storm, it is absolutely ineffective to actually solve anything. Great, you know what the problem is. You haven't done anything to address it. And so, where are you seeking to rehash issues that cause the storm rather than to begin to look for what solutions need to take place to end the storm? See, Jonah starts telling him all this information, right? It's kind of like two, uh, two truths and a lie, right? He says that he's a Hebrew, which is true. Um, he says that there's a God in heaven who made everything, uh, including the sea and dry land. And then he says, oh, I love and fear the Lord. Really, Jonah, you love and fear the Lord who spoke to you, told you to go to Nineveh, and you got on a boat and went to Joppa. I don't think you really get to claim your holiness points at that point, right? We know Jonah's the problem. We know Jonah's the problem and yet nothing's changed. So they've revealed it. Okay, let's keep going and look at number five and six. Verses 11 through 13. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Number five. When you are facing a storm, you begin to just address the sinner. So this is when intervention happens. We know who the source of the problem is. And then we think somehow, if we just address the person who's causing the problem, they'll be able to fix it. They're the ones causing the problem. They, do, they, are, they are blinded to their own sin. They have no idea sometimes even that they're walking in disobedience. And yet we're looking to them to fix them. I praise God, my elders, when I was walking disobedience, say, okay, Chris, fix yourself. Or what are we going to do? No, they said, Chris, here's what we're going to do. This is what repentance looks like. You're going to go all in. And so we think wrongly that if we just cry out to the person who is causing the storm, that somehow they'll just fix themselves and all will be better. So where are you when you've identified the source of conflict? Start looking to the source of pain to fix it. Okay, number six. This is Jonah's response. See, what happens is when you look at the source of pain and say, fix yourself, it leads to number six, which is this, despair and seeking to disengage. See, you're putting all the weight of restoration and repentance on that person to fix everything. And Jonah, what Jonah just does, he says, just chuck me out of the boat, guys. I don't want anything to do with what's going on here anymore. You're asking me to fix myself? I don't think I can. Just leave me to die. And so, see, God's called Jonah for a purpose. God's called you for a purpose. And it's not to disengage. See, right, if Jonah just disengages, then then Nineveh doesn't get saved. Jonah doesn't repent. The storm doesn't doesn't relent. Like none of those things that God has purposed happen. And and it is like, which is actually a good movie. Um, uh, um, Oh, I'm looking right at it here. It's a Wonderful Life, right? Six months from today is Christmas. You got six months to shop, guys. Um, Six months from today is Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life, right? George Bailey just sees this storm of things happening around him and just says, I want to check out, jumps off the bridge. And the little angel guy is merciful to show him like what life would look like with him gone. 
No, God has made you for a purpose. God has called you for a purpose. He's brought you into a community for a purpose. And so when you're walking in disobedience, the answer is not to disengage, but to press in, to repent, relent, and actually walk out what God has called you to do. That's number six. Number seven, we've got to keep going. This one I think is even more popular than taking a nap. Um, This is one that I know that we all do. Number seven, just try harder. So the sailors hear Jonah's kind of, you know, uh, um, self-pity of like, just throw me out of the boat. And they're like, no, no, we got this. And so what do they do? It says they start rowing harder. My translation says they actually dig in their oars. They're like, if we just get everybody on the same page, we can overcome this storm and make it back to shore. And the reason that try harder is so popular and that we do this individually, like we'll white knuckle, like I'll just power through whatever's going on here. Or we do it collectively and say, let's just overcome whatever's going on in our church or in our city is because it feels so good. You're putting effort in. Like you get to be the hero, right? You got a few other people rowing with you side by side. Hey guys, I think we got this. We're going to get this, right? And everybody kind of rallies up for the new mission and it denies this fact. No amount of individual or communal effort can overcome sin. No amount of individual or communal effort can overcome sin. And so they're trying hard to overcome the storm and we see it just doesn't work, right? They don't make it back. No amount of digging in or dip, digging deeper for others is going to overcome when somebody else is hard, hard to repent or, or, or unrepentant rather. So I want you to know this very clearly. You cannot repent of sin for anyone else. And no one else can repent of sin that's yours but you. You cannot overcome it by just working harder as a group. See, individuals and community cannot fix or change anyone at the heart level Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do that. And so we wear ourselves out individually and as a community when we think that we're going to somehow restore somebody in a way that only God can. So I know I've just walked through seven things that fail, right? We could just end now and this would just be really sad news, right? So we're not going to do that. So let's read these last um, three verses of Jonah 3 and then we'll close it out, all right? Jonah chapter 1, rather, verses 14 through 16. So they've tried everything. They've done all seven of these things. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They've tried everything. Up to this point, no one's prayed to any God that mattered. But it says, then they all prayed to the Lord, the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, who reveals himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, things change. And so here they are, like, like they realize at a certain point, they cannot overcome Jonah's sin. They cannot bear the cost of Jonah's sin. Only God can deal with it. And they chuck Jonah out. Here's the deal. I believe unequivocally that if Jonah at that moment 
before being chucked out, had said, you know what, guys? I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to repent. Would you guys take me back to Joppa so that I can go to Nineveh and walk in obedience that God has called me to? I believe that that storm would have relented, that it would have been calm, and that God would have brought a nice west breeze to push that boat back to the dock as fast as he could so that Jonah could walk in obedience. But he is too hard-hearted, too unrepentant, and at a certain point, they can't overcome Jonah's sin. And so they chuck him out and leave God to deal with it. And the sailors cry out this prayer of mercy before they do it. Um, don't let the, his innocent blood be on us, even though we all know Jonah's guilty. He's not innocent. The storm calms, the ship is saved. And then what happens, these pluralistic sailors, irony of ironies, Jonah hates people that aren't religious, and now he's on a boat full of people that aren't religious, and they all repent and trust the God of the Bible. Right? It says they worship the Lord. They sacrifice to the Lord, give tithes and offerings, sing songs, serve in church. I'm sure your kids' uh, ministry needs more kids. Our kids' road does. I assume yours does too. Like they start serving, giving. All these things are great. And like this is what we call at our church like gospel worship. See, they don't worship so that God will save them. They worship God from a joyful response because he saved them from the storm. They just praise God. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. God is even able to use Jonah's sin and disobedience and the distress it caused, causes to bring glory to him and himself. See, you can walk in sin, you can be unrepentant, and God will still be glorified by it. Sinners will still meet Jesus because God's will for his people is relentless. And so, like, don't hear me wrong. Like, let's not start a new ministry at Restoration Road, like, sinning evangelism. Like, just make a dumpster fire of your life so that people come to Christ. Like, don't do that. Sam would come back really unhappy. Um, and so, like, but, but I want you to know, like, God can overcome your sin and still bring glory to himself and save his people. And so, in this, we learn that salvation has a cost. That Jonah can't remain on the boat. He has to go down so the ship can go free. And I think it'd be easy for us to say, see, Jonah sacrificed himself just like Jesus sacrificed for us. And yet, like, I need you to know that Jonah's sacrifice was not humble. It was from a place of self-pity. Jonah's not sinless. He can barely pay for his own sin, let alone save sailors. And so when Jesus comes in the New Testament, and starts preaching and teaching good news about how to overcome sin that don't include any of these seven steps we just looked at that failed. Jesus says, there's one greater than Jonah here. I'm sinless. I'm perfect. I will lay down my life for my people. And so where, where Jonah is, is selfish and his sacrifice is this sort of reactionary act um, given by these desperate men hoping the storm will subside, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is an intentional act by God planned from before the foundations of the world that God's not like, well, I hope it saves some people. God knows it will save many from the storm of God's wrath of just judgment for sin. God shows his deeper mercy where Jesus takes the storm of wrath on the cross and where the ship, it says, is threatened to be torn apart, Jesus' body is actually torn apart on the cross. And where the sailors say, don't put Jonah's innocent blood on us, Jesus is actually innocent. 
And his shed blood in our place pays for our sins. Where we as Christians come forward and we take communion and we say, yes, Jesus' broken body for us. Yes, Jesus' shed blood, please be on us. Because our only hope is not that when we see God face to face, that we say, God, here's all the things I did to overcome the storm. But we say, God, we know Jesus has overcome the storm in our place. Give me mercy because of what Jesus has done for me. And so I don't know where you're at today. Like, I don't assume that just because you gathered here at a church this morning, while I do believe it's an act of the Holy Spirit, you came inside when it's hot. I don't believe this was an accident. And so if you're not a Christian, I believe the reason that God has brought you here today is so that you will look at your life and think of all the ways you're trying to overcome your own sin and that you would repent, turn from sin of trusting yourself, thinking somehow you'll overcome your own storm and that you would trust the God of the Bible by placing your faith and allegiance in Jesus Christ alone. And if you are a Christian who's been walking in sin I pr- and has been causing distress for everyone, I pray that you would just repent. Stop walking in disobedience. Don't ask to disengage, but say, know that God has created you for a purpose and begin to live a new life walking in obedience. And if you are someone who's just religious or just exhausted, trying harder to overcome the storms in your life or the pains of the storms of the sin in the world around you, I pray that you would just relent and rest that the God of the Bible who knows you controls the storm and has not promised to end every storm, but promises that he's in control in the midst of it and that he will bring you home. So my hope for everyone is that they would repent, relent, rest, and trust Jesus. Let's pray.